believe that already. And of course, it will continue through the end of the month. We've had excellent speakers and excellent topics. And appreciate Brother Terry Edwards for the excellent job he's done uh, planning uh, the theme and the selection of speakers so far. Uh, of course, tonight we are honored to have uh, someone that's no stranger to us, Brother Jeff Miller. And I'm just going to read a couple things here. I have to kind of read this because I, I can't memorize some of these words. But uh, he graduated from Fried Hardeman with honors and received a BS degree in physical science with minors in Bible, French, and mathematics. And then he earned a BS in mechanical engineering from the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, Brother Miller also received and earned a Master of Science and a PhD uh, from bi in biochemical engineering from Texas Arlington and Auburn University, uh, respectively. Now, the emphasis here is thermodynamics. I don't even know what these things are, but uh, anyhow, the emphasis is in thermodynamics. Now, I know that's a, and there's a second law of thermodynamics, and you know, so, yeah. And uh, biothermal science and biotransport phenomena. That's when Scotty beams them up, I think, isn't it? Bio, okay, probably. Uh, also, navigation and control of biological systems. Now, this is interesting. Brother Miller is an active and recognized member of the scientific community, a member of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers and the National Society of Professional Engineers, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, uh, the Creation Science Fellowship. And I just mentioned all that just to say you don't get where he is today unless you are very intelligent unless you prepared yourself, unless you studied, and uh, he's done all these things. He pre he's prepared himself well, and uh, he's one of the foremost uh, uh, defenders of the faith today that we have. Uh, currently, uh, Brother Miller serves as a full-time science writer at Apologetics Press. He's the associate editor of the uh, monthly Christian Evidences Journal and Reason Revelation. And uh, I don't know if you uh, subscribe to that or read that. I very much enjoy reading that. Uh, I know uh, uh, the uh, issue this month was particularly interesting about the flat earth. I did not really know uh, so many people subscribe to that theory today. And so we're very honored to have Brother Miller with us tonight. He's well qualified to uh, speak on what he's going to talk to us about. Uh, some of his families here tonight, where are they at? Didn't I see some of your... They're here. All right. But so uh, following a prayer led, led by Brother Melvin Ote, we're going to turn our uh, remaining of our time over to him. Y'all bow with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us life and strength in order for us to be here today. We appreciate opportunities like this where we can see our brethren and and be encouraged along the way as we try to make sure that we stay on the straight and narrow path. And we appreciate men like Jeff uh, who give their lives to understanding your word and teaching the same, who tirelessly prepare themselves and go in advance of us to educate himself uh, so that he can turn again and help us to better understand these fundamental principles about the world in which we live and the great things that you're doing all around us. Uh, we appreciate not only his education, but the dedication he has to his family and the way that he uh, labors as a husband and as a father and the work that he does in the lo local church here at Panama Street. Uh, we certainly pray that you'll bless him and all of his work and his efforts. 
and that you'll bless us as we sit at his feet this evening. Please do be with him and be with us uh, as we go through into this time of study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Melvin. Thank you uh, to Doug for introducing me. Thanks to Terry for inviting me. So uh, apparently you didn't learn your lesson last time I was here. Uh, so here we go. I've got a lot of things to cover tonight, so I'm not going to mince words here. Uh, first of all, I would not consider myself uh, an expert on medical ethics. I'm not an MD, uh, but I have done quite a bit of reading uh, on this subject and plan to give you a general survey of this subject tonight. Um, and so we'll have to move kind of fast, faster than I'd like to in order to cover everything that I had planned. Uh, but these things need to be addressed today, and Christians need to be aware of what's going on. Why do I uh, say that? Well, because we want to do what's right. We want to make use of modern technology wherever we can, but we don't want to do something that God wouldn't have us to do. And so we need to know what is okay with God and what is not okay, so that in order for us to be able to do, to act from faith, knowing that God sanctions something. And also, according to 1 Peter 3.15, we're, we're to be apologists. We're supposed to be ready to defend the truth. Uh, this wasn't as much uh, an issue, this medical ethics stuff, 100 years ago, but now you've got genetic engineering and, and stem cell research and uh, abortion techniques and cloning and all kinds of things going on that Christians need to be aware of so that we can figure out what God would have to say about these sorts of things. So we need to be... Uh, ready to stand for what's right in, in our society. Uh, does the Bible have anything to say about medical ethics? Uh, well, how in the world could it? it? It's not a science or a medical textbook, uh, but it is accurate. Uh, since God is the author, then we would expect accuracy when it touches on science or medicine, and, and we'd also expect the Bible to be timeless and relevant at all times, just like its author is. Uh, but how in the world would the Bible have anything to say about modern medical practices? Well, for one, we know that uh, God tells us in His Word that He has, in fact, given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Um, and so, as with all other areas of life, God has told us what we need to know in order to be able to live in any time, including the modern era. So how can you determine what is... Uh, what God's will is and whether you have authority to do something. Well, obviously, uh, the answer is going to come down to the principle of authority and knowing how the Bible authorizes. Uh, it, can't, um, author if, um, it can authorize explicitly, so Noah build an ark, uh, Christians go preach the gospel, and sometimes it can authorize implicitly. Uh, Noah needs to use axes and hammers and pegs. Uh, Christians, you can walk, run, jump, ride, sail, whatever as you go about try to, uh, trying to preach the gospel. Now, when an explicit command is not given in Scripture, enough information is going to generally be given to be able to infer what God expects of us in different kinds of situations. And if there isn't enough information, then we refrain from doing that since it can't be done uh, confidently knowing what God, uh, whether he approves of something or not. In other words, it's not from faith, Romans 14, 23. So again, as with all other areas of life, God has told us what we need to know to be able to live in a modern era. Now let's talk about genetic engineering, since this is a very 
relevant but oftentimes less understood area of medical ethics today. Uh, this area of research involves any form of artificial reproduction or genetic manipulation. And the primary goal of this field is clearly to try to alleviate human suffering. It's certainly not a bad thing inherently. Uh, the goal of this area is not to be insensitive towards life or religion or to be malicious. But that said, when it's, when it's all said and done, we find that in some cases, genetic engineering is just that. Uh, but alleviating human suffering, of course, is not inherently wrong. Uh, is helping humans okay? Uh, is it okay to go to a doctor? Well, of course, Jesus is described as the great physician, and uh, numerous medical treatments are prescribed in the Old Testament. You see miraculous healings occurring throughout Scripture, uh, showing that the medical field can't be inherently wrong. But is that, uh, that does not mean that every form of healing today would necessarily be acceptable. And so some will argue that, hey, if it alleviates suffering, then pretty much anything goes. Uh, euthanasia, uh, suicide or assisted suicide, abortion, narcotics. Uh, some will argue, hey, you know, it's my body. I can do with it what I want, uh, which, of course, contradicts 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which explicitly says it's not your body, uh, which is a concept we need to get clear in our minds today. Another issue, some scientists and physicians work with the underlying assumption that we need to fix nature and that we are somehow capable of doing that. And so the assumption is either God messed up or more commonly that evolution hasn't quite optimized nature yet and so we need to help it along. Uh, I remember whenever I was uh, doing uh, my engineering master's work in Texas, I attended a lecture where uh, a special speaker came that was discussing artificial hearts, and, and this lady was involved in, in uh, engineering hearts. And the question, a question from the audience was asked, has evolution optimized the heart, or do we need to be helping it along? I notice that is a very dangerous mindset. Uh, it is certainly true that, that genetic entropy has been hitting humanity hard uh, since uh, the beginning. We've got thousands of years of genetic entropy working into our genomes, and so the machines that God designed aren't necessarily operating as well as they were at the beginning, and therefore we have to try to counter entropy in some areas. But to assume that they never have been optimal and that we might uh, need to improve on them in, in some fundamental way is only courting catastrophe. Uh, obviously, the perspective that we can and should improve on nature implies that we're supreme and that we have uh, all authority and we're wise and knowledgeable enough to do that. And so it implies that we're not responsible to God and nor are we accountable to him for our decisions. And so instead, uh, either economic value or what we deem as good for the most people becomes the supreme rule. And so the end justifies the means uh, in order to attain whatever is deemed best for a society. And that is what's going on in this arena now, and therein lies the problem. God has to have a voice in everything, in whatever we do in word or deed. Well, there's three types of genetic research going on today. There's modification. 
This is where you have changes in existing structure uh, by splicing in new genetic material, for example, or altering what's present, uh, so to try to improve the organism or to uh, prevent or even cure disease. Uh, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with, with this form of genetic engineering. Uh, so, for example, injecting healthy copies of bad genes uh, into uh, bone marrow cells to try to cure genetic disorders by helping uh, the production of missing enzymes. Uh, another area, the creation of new life forms. So this is novel living beings. So engineering the engineer instead of the engine. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, the recent lab, the, the, the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, they synthesized two nucleotides to add to the typical four that already exist in our DNA. Okay, so we have A, G, C, and T in our DNA. They've added an X and a Y, and they've added new DNA to a cell, which then accepted that new DNA. Now, as you can imagine, there could certainly be some danger here because humans are now becoming godlike by tampering with life at a very fundamental level. Even though we really only have a foundation of knowledge that's based on just a few years. And so again, this isn't necessarily inherently wrong in every case, but that said, uh, doing this with sentient being, beings like human beings would number one, it can cause untold uh, number of deaths while the research is going on, and number two would cause ultimately the dehumanization of the, uh, of the uh, human being, the created human. So it reminds me of how uh, clones are treated as subhuman in uh, Star Wars, right? Uh, the third area of genetic engineering involves procreation. So this is allowing uh, reproduction in humans and in animals where it was once not possible or maybe prolonging or shortening a person's life based on the wishes of relatives and friends. And this is what we're gonna look at more as our emphasis for the remainder of this lesson. The main question I wanna discuss regarding this is what is and is not acceptable to God regarding modern reproductive techniques that have been developed by scientists. And so we'll try to look at four areas, uh, reproductive techniques based uh, used before conception, at conception, in the prenatal period, and if we have time, the postnatal period, so after birth. And so we're going to uh, probably only have time for those first three, I'm guessing. Genetic engineering techniques that are relevant before conception would include genetic counseling. And so this involves using our understanding of genetics to try to help anticipate the dangers of two particular people coming together and having children. And so this helps in family planning, so to try to prepare for the future health of a mom and her children. And so, for example, you could figure out the risk for certain genetic defects by looking at several factors, including family history and uh, history of miscarriages and work environments and marriages with close blood relatives and that sort of thing. So. Uh, so it's good for people in certain situations to be able to anticipate what may be coming. Uh, so obviously as Christians, we want to be unselfish and we want to think about the welfare of others, especially our future children and our posterity. And so clearly we would want to consider the wisdom of this option in certain circumstances. Uh, so for example, we now know that if a, per if a person has a severe mental illness, 
uh, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or a major uh, depressive disorder, there is a 32% probability that the child will also develop a severe mental illness by adulthood. Now that's handy to know before deciding to try to have uh, kids. Mothers with HIV who are not being treated for that have a 25% chance of passing that on to their children. And so in, in such situations, a parent will likely want to avoid having children, though of course never aborting a child. Uh, genetic screening can also be used before conception to detect certain illnesses. Uh, and again, you have to be careful here. Some genetic counselors, doctors and nurses so forth, will sometimes pressure parents to terminate a pregnancy when genetic screening is done after conception if problems are found with the child. And terminating that pregnancy would be unacceptable, of course, scripturally. But that said, it can be a good thing to know and prepare for what may be coming if a couple uh, chooses to have children. Statistically, if both parents have certain uh, common genetic diseases or syndromes, the risk of the child inheriting it are 25%. And that is definitely information a parent would like to have when trying to make family decisions. So bottom line, when, when, uh, when would it be genetically irresponsible to have kids uh, or more kids uh, has to be considered. Limiting the size of your family is biblically authorized. Uh, Luke 14, 28, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Proverbs 22, 3, the prudent man foresees or anticipates evil or danger and hides himself. Uh, so this brings us back to the usefulness of genetic counseling and screening. Uh, so notice also the Bible doesn't explicitly say anything about genetic counseling, uh, but there are clearly principles that implicitly authorize using that to a certain extent. Sometimes it's good to know what you're getting into, and it can be unselfish towards your future children to think uh, some things through. Obviously, again, abortion is never an option. Okay, that's before conception techniques. Then you have reproductive techniques uh, that are used at conception. And so we, uh, we should discuss cloning. This is reproduction where uh, an exact duplicate of the original is made. And so we have natural clones. Uh, bacteria, for example, are natural clones. They reproduce by copying their DNA uh, and splitting in two. But in this day and age, we have artificial cloning as well through what is called nuclear transfer. And so this is where uh, you use an unfertilized egg from a female and you remove or destroy the nucleus and then you implant the nucleus from a body cell uh, of a female into the egg and they then re-implant the egg into the uterus and then it proceeds to behave like a fertilized egg. But all of the genetic information is from a single individual rather than two parents. So you're cloning the single parent. And this has been used with all kinds of things from, uh, from various vegetables, from, from carrots and tomatoes and fruit flies and uh, frogs have been artificially cloned using embryonic cells, uh, cells where uh, the nucleus of a fertilized egg is inserted into a unfertilized egg. Of course, 1995, uh, sheep became the first mammals that were cloned using nuclear transfer. Uh, they used embryonic cells, so not adult cells. 
And so the cells are undifferentiated. What that means is that they haven't already grown into cells with specific functions in the body. They haven't become skin cells and brain cells and eye cells, for example. Uh, so it's the difference between the clone being more like a child version of the adult rather than being an actual carbon copy of the adult. Uh, in 1998, um, well, actually 96, Scottish scientist uh, Ian Wilmot cloned Dolly the sheep from adult cells. You might have remembered Dolly. Uh, so an actual carbon copy of the adult sheep. Uh, 1998, the cloned sheep was found to be able to reproduce. So it wasn't sterile. Uh, another sheep was born in 1999, but it had serious health issues and died. Uh, so there was one success out of 277 tries on that. Uh, but now they've done uh, mice, cattle, goats, pigs, cats, rabbits, uh, uh, mules, horses, deer have all been cloned from adult cells, but they tend to die quicker than their natural counterparts. Now, why is, is there an interest in this? Well, with cloning, you could take, for example, cows uh, that tend to produce more or better milk because of their genetic disposition and clone them, guaranteeing a stream of better milk or meat and so forth. And there's also an interest in cloning animals with better body parts that could be used to help replace diseased human counterparts in some instances. Uh, one of the more recent discussions involves using cloning to reverse extinction. Uh, so according to researchers, by applying techniques such as cloning and genetic engineering, some believe we can and should return lost species such as the passenger pigeon to the landscape. And so there could be some danger there uh, because God created the earth where extinctions happen and that can be a good thing. And if you start reversing extinction, that can cause problems in the current ecosystem, which is drastically different from the pre-flood ecosystem, for example. Uh, plus, if an animal's extinction is due to it ceasing to be fit enough for an environment, then making more of that animal is only going to cause more of their deaths in the long run. Uh, they're likely, more likely to move right back towards extinction. Now, the big question is, what about humans? Should that be done? And what would be the motivation for that? Uh, some might choose to not face their grief over the loss of a child and instead attempt to replace the child with a clone. Uh, you can imagine some are, uh, would like to have a clone version of themselves or their children or their loved ones so that they would have compatible organ transplantation when needed. And of course, in our materialistic society, everybody wants to be forever young, and cloning ourselves could potentially give us physical immortality. If we had clones that we could just harvest body parts from to replace old, diseased, or injured body parts. Uh, some scientists just want, to, want prestige and attention for being the ones that pull this off. Uh, that's a big motivation. So many would want uh, to be able to have a clone, but the more important question, of course, is would we not want to clone humans? Uh, first of all, based on Scripture, a baby is human at conception. Uh, so there's no reason to think that a clone wouldn't be just as much a sentient being as we are, and therefore a clone has the same rights as any human being would in the sight of God. Now, if human clone uh, results mimic those of the mammals that have already been cloned, then we would expect higher than normal rates 
of fetal disorders, death in pregnancy, uh, malformation, like for example, large uh, offspring syndrome, uh, death among newborns. It's estimated that 95% or more of all cloning attempts fail and half of the remaining ones die soon after birth. So imagine the same figures or more trying to clone human babies. Uh, but also there's a potential serious threat to the mothers of the clones. And so there a, a, would be a serious threat to the cloned human without any obvious benefit to the human bearing the threat. Uh, in this case, the clone. But of course, you also have the fact that the research itself, uh, cloning, to try to get it up to the minuscule success rates that we're seeing with animals, would require untold baby deaths in testing and research. Again, keeping in mind that God would consider a baby human at conception. Uh, British physicist Sir John Polkinghorne said this, there's still unresolved questions about how long such a clone will live and how healthy it'll prove to be. If animal experiments of this kind go seriously wrong, it's always possible to halt them by the humane slaughter of the beast concerned. An attempt to use a similar procedure to produce a cloned human person would undoubtedly also require a large number of trials before success was achieved and would involve similar uncertainties about long-term consequences. Uh, putting it bluntly, it would inevitably require the production of experimental human beings. This in itself is morally unacceptable. These procedures might have as their intended and a end a desirable purpose, such as the birth of a healthy baby who might otherwise suffer from a severe mitochondrial disorder. But the manner in which this has become feasible through a sequence of experiments of this kind would have been ethically uh, tainted. Uh, Dr. Uh, David Stevens is the executive director of the Christian Medical Association. He said the basic moral question is, should we allow scientists to destroy dozens of individuals to give parents the child that they want? Uh, British science writer Mark Ridley commented on the importance of sexual reproduction in response to cloning. He said, we need sex. We may need it to, be, to clear out harmful mutations, a sub-branch of human beings who went in for cloning reproduction would also be signing their progeny up for a mutational meltdown. They would undergo rapid genetic decay as mutations accumulated faster than they could be eliminated. The basic problem lies in messing with a design feature of our bodies when we do not understand the design principles. So other ethical issues, uh, cloning could be used to provide children for unmarried people. Uh, circumventing God's plan for the home. Parents could uh, pre-select the gender and numerous other attributes of their children. Uh, the women's liberation, of course, would be uh, complete because no male would be needed to produce a child. Uh, lesbians would be elated. Uh, large batches of human clones could be made for statistical studies, uh, produced in order to harvest spare parts, uh, bone marrow and hearts and so forth for transplants. So imagine being a clone, knowing that you're alive only as scrap for others. Uh, clone armies could be created and, and would likely be treated as subhuman, like animals or slaves or robots. So imagine people who were enamored with their own importance, making exact genetic replicas of themselves uh, by tens or hundreds if they so desired. Uh, so no wonder, according to the uh, 2003 Inter-Academy Panel on International Issues Statement to the UN Committee on Cloning, 
They said, even in a, on a purely scientific basis, therefore, it would be quite irresponsible for anyone to attempt human reproductive cloning given our current level of scientific knowledge. We therefore call on all countries worldwide to ban reproductive cloning of human beings. So notice, of course, that they only advocate banning reproductive cloning. So not cloning for therapeutic or research purposes. So ban cloning that is used to initiate a pregnancy not a ban on embryonic stem cell research, which uh, I'll talk about here in a few moments. Um, so uh, several years ago, the U.S. outlawed federal funding for research on human embryonic stem cells, but they didn't put a ban on uh, private research. Uh, the U.S. FDA has stepped forward and taken an authoritative role in prohibiting cloning, seeing that as an experimental medical procedure. In August of 2001, the National Academy of Sciences had a conference on cloning in D.C., and in the summary article by Michael Lemonek in, in uh, Time magazine, he said, most of the scientists who gathered in Washington earlier this month to talk about human cloning agreed that cloning an entire human being, besides being morally questionable, was fraught with technical obstacles. After all, research into animal cloning has already shown that for every apparent success like Dolly the sheep, there are hundreds of failures, including many badly deformed creatures that were usually uh, miscarried. So this highlights the fact that cloning is the epitome of selfishness. And so those who push for human cloning are not thinking about the good of others. Uh, in this case, the poor deformed dying babies that are produced by failed clonings. Uh, but rest assured, it's just a matter of time before scientists are openly uh, may, attempting this more with gusto. Uh, other questions to consider, would clones really be an exact duplicate? So if you cloned you, would it be you? Uh, well, it would only be you genetically, like identical twins. So uh, humans have, have a soul and are the product of our environment and experiences just as much as we are our genes. So would the clone be human? Would a cloned human have a soul, for example? Uh, James 2.26 talks of humans uh, saying that the body apart from the spirit is dead. And so if the human body is alive, then by implication it has a spirit. And so if scientists are able to clone living humans, they would by implication have a soul. But only God can instill a soul, Acts 17.25. So the real question is, would God choose to instill a soul into a clone, therefore giving it life? Who knows? I guess we'll see, right? <laughs> uh, other techniques used at conception, you have artificial insemination or uh, intrauterine insemination. This is, this is a conception option where sperm are collected and then the best are filtered and implanted by catheter into the uterus of a woman and released. Uh, so why is artificial insemination being done? Uh, this technique is usually chosen because of male infertility problems. Uh, fertility problems are known to come down to male issues in 10 to 15% of cases. So inadequate seed, for example. Uh, so there's different types of artificial insemination. You have AIH. Uh, this is uh, artificial in insemination with the husband's sperm. You have AID, where you have donor sperm. AIDH, where you have donor and husband sperm. Uh, now, if artificial insemination with only the husband is used, then there wouldn't necessarily be a biblical problem with that. It's just correction of physiological problems that are likely brought about by genetic entropy over the thousands of years since creation. 
But there are ethical issues with donor artificial insemination and donor husband artificial insemination. For example, women could bear children for single men who want to be fathers or unmarried couples, which again circumvents God's ultimate plan for the home. So women could bear children for other married couples, so uh, surrogate motherhood. Women could bear children for homosexual men. Uh, Women who are lesbians could have children without a male partner. In fact, thousands of children are right now being raised by lesbians who were conceived, uh, who conceived those children through artificial insemination. Uh, The gender of the child could be pre-selected as well, since methods are now available to concentrate the uh, Y chromosome bearing sperm, which is necessary for the production of male children. Uh, Also, possibilities exist for those donating the sperm to pass on unwanted genetic traits. That's an issue. There's also emotional aspects involved as well. The wife, for example, might feel an attachment to the donor if donor sperm are used. Uh, You have legal and or moral problems that often result as well. So for example, uh, who is the legitimate father if donor sperm are used? Uh, Is the child legitimate? Uh, Also, regardless of how you view the scenario, uh, the, the artificially inseminated child is a genetic product of a man and the mother, though she's not married to that man. She's still a mother and he's still a father, and therefore both are responsible for the child before God. Uh, well-known Christian evangelical author Nancy Piercy summarized another thing for Christians to consider with this. By using both abortion and artificial reproduction, we're building a technology of reproduction around the parent's wishes. To put it bluntly, if you don't want the child growing within you, you can destroy it through abortion. And if you do want a child, you can get one to order through a trip to the laboratory. There's an erosion of respect for existing life as a gift of God wherever we find it. We can now hire life and death at the parent's uh, wishes. So bottom line, it seems to me that AID and AIDH are dangerous choices for Christians. You've also got in vitro fertilization. This is where several eggs from a woman are generated through stimulating the ovaries and then sucked from the ovaries, put into a petri dish with sperm for a few days, and then selected embryos are implanted by catheter into the woman's uterus. And so these are the test tube babies you hear about. And so this technique is used for those with uh, blocked fallopian tubes, uh, advanced reproductive age, low sperm count, or some kind of unexplained infertility. According to WebMD, there have been over 200,000 IVF babies in the U.S. uh, that have been born in uh, the last uh, 32 years or so. Well, there are ethical issues uh, involved in in vitro fertilization, IVF. Uh, First of all, IVF results in the death of fertilized eggs before they're implanted. And so some of the eggs that were fertilized in the Petri dish. Uh, So some of those fertilized eggs, of course, die unintentionally, but some die purposely if they're deemed not fit enough to be used for implantation into the mother. And then further, after implantation, 60% of them miscarry. And so we have to keep in mind that these are humans in God's sight. Every soul is precious to God. It's not just an embryo to God. Uh, In the in vitro fertilization procedure, uh, three eggs on average will pass the test and get implanted into the mother. And then transabdominal abdominal selective reproduction is used to wipe out the zygotes that have been implanted that are deemed inferior. And so basically you have a lot of premeditated murder that is carried out on those babies that are considered less fit. 
Uh, five to 12 eggs are fertilized on average in IVF and only three are implant, implanted uh, on average. So two to nine embryos are either tossed out or frozen, most of which will eventually be discarded. And so incidentally, researchers want to be able to use the hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos for stem cell experiments, but uh, Bush prohibited federal funding for research on human embryos in 2001. Uh, Obama overturned that through an executive order in 2009, which removed the restrictions on embryonic stem cell research. Uh, now, something for Christians to consider, uh, snowflake babies. This is also called embryo adoption. Uh, are the, that's where you've got these discarded fertilized eggs from IVH embryos that are adopted. Uh, hundreds of babies have been born through this adoptive process, and those embryos are saved from death. Uh, another issue to consider in the case of those donating eggs for any of these, uh, these procedures, it's still partially your baby. It's your genetic offspring, and therefore your responsibility before God when you donate, just as in the case with sperm bags. Uh, and if those issues aren't enough, you have to consider the foundational principles of medical ethics. Now, a fundamental ethical principle in medicine is that if a procedure is to be done, it should be for the benefit of the patient. And so consider IVF and the human embryos. Is this a procedure you would appreciate if you're one of those embryos? Now, another foundational principle, informed consent of the patient. Uh, has the embryo given uh, informed consent? Does it, does it get a choice in its life or death? Now, minors usually have to assent and parents consent to a procedure, when, uh, and when that's not possible, parents are to act in the best interest of the child. But is killing in the best interest of the child? Uh, so ironically, parents can't order the termination of a treatment that's required to keep a child alive, even if they think it's in the child's best in, uh, interest, and yet the unborn are butchered, of course, like they're basically gnats. Uh, what about IVF surrogacy? This is having a baby for someone else using IVF. Uh, now, in the distant past, surrogacy was typical, of course, among slaves and servants, and then came artificial in, uh, insemination, uh, implantation of uh, sperm into a woman. In the 1980s, a surrogate mother's egg was fertilized with a husband's sperm, and so there was a genetic link to the husband in the child, but not the wife. Uh, it was the surrogate's genes instead. And now, of course, you have IVF, where you've got a wife's egg coupled with a, a husband's sperm, but they're then planted in a donor womb. So a surrogate mother uh, with a fee paid to her to uh, surrogate. Okay, so are there ethical issues to consider with IVF surrogacy? Well, definitely. Uh, we even find some of those issues in Scripture, don't we? Uh, the emotional baggage that's caused for the surrogate. You think of uh, Genesis 16 with Hagar and Sarah. There's potential danger to your child since you can't know what the surrogate who's carrying your baby will do while they're pregnant. And then there are the other fertilized eggs. Remember that half of the 10 to 12 eggs that are taken for IVF die, they're aborted. Uh, so is the death of five children worth the craving to have one? And then you have to consider 1 Timothy 5.14, the biblical plan for reproduction. Women marry, bear children, and guide or manage the house. And so notice that surrogacy bypasses the marriage part. Uh, so a single mother could simply walk into a sperm bank and get some sperm to fertilize one of her eggs. 
So is that God's plan for the home? Should another man's sperm be placed in a woman's body impregnating her when she's not his wife? That's the ethical issue here. Uh, Consider, for example, a real-world case. You had a, a barren couple wanted a child, and so they took unknown donor sperm, an unknown donor egg, hired a surrogate, and had the fertilized egg placed in her. Then a divorce ensued between the hiring couple during the surrogate pregnancy. So question, whose child is that? Okay, does the baby belong to the surrogate who never intended to rear the child? Then if so, then that admits that she's a mother since she carried and birthed the baby, even though she only intended to carry the child. And though she's not genetically even related to the child. Uh, Is the baby the child of the original genetic donor parents? Those who originally donated the egg and the sperm that were in storage and then selected by the divorced couple. If so, then that highlights the danger of donating sperm and eggs. You're still going to be liable as parents. Uh, Does the baby belong to the man and woman who hired the surrogacy but never officially had a child yet and have no genetic culpability towards the child? So notice the mess. And so this highlights why God has a specific plan for the home. Uh, The child would now have to suffer due to the desires of her parents, whomever they were. Well, the court actually had to first rule that the child had no lawful parents. Uh, Ultimately, the the girl had no parents for three years until the courts finally gave a ruling. So is that really God's plan for the home? Uh, Another case in May of 1995, uh, University of California at Irvine, Drs. Ash and uh, Balmacheda, were accused of stealing eggs and embryos and switching them between patients and selling them to infertile couples for surrogacy. Okay, so whose children are whose now? Uh, whose child are you responsible for before God? And should, uh, should the children be given back to you when the genetic truth is discovered, even if it's been years? Uh, so notice that surrogacy seems like a major act of love, but notice the ethical dilemmas that can come up. So wouldn't simply sticking with God's design plan for the home ultimately eliminate much of the chaos and ethical dilemmas you see here? All right, so summarizing IVF, uh, not necessarily biblical issues with Christian couples getting help with physiological issues that are preventing pregnancy. There is, however, a significant problem with the butchering of innocent embryos along the way as the doctors are attempting to find the fittest and most likely to survive in IVF procedures. So it would be one thing if IVF would only produce eggs that would all be used. But that is not the procedure going on, and to get to that point would ultimately require more and more deaths as they perfect that procedure. And of course, you also have to consider the principle of stewardship. It's very costly to have this procedure done. I'm already running out of time. Uh, we have, I'm not going to even probably spend time here on abortion. We pretty much know uh, the truth on that. The Bible has a lot to say about the principle of abortion, not directly in general, but indirectly uh, talks about this. And there are lots of passages that, that weigh in on emphasizing the fact that uh, a baby is, becomes a human at conception. Let's jump ahead, though, to the prenatal period. You have amniocentesis. This is where uh, amniotic fluid is collected and tested for over 70 different disorders. 
And so they can determine gender using amniocentesis as well. Uh, and we also have sonograms during this period as well, which, we can, which can be used to determine the health of a child, of course, and screen for disorders. Uh, if issues are discovered, a parent can wait it out and prepare or go with ut uh, utero prenatal surgery or blood transfusions to try to fix problems, which is uh, unusual to do that. Others, of course, abort when they see problems. Uh, which, of course, is not acceptable. So standing back, there, there's nothing inherently wrong with amniocentesis or sonograms, of course. Uh, parents can use the information to prepare. Uh, but oftentimes, these are used as grounds and even pressure to terminate a pregnancy in abortion, which, of course, again, is not acceptable. Also, you have stem cell research. Uh, initially, researchers used IVF discards and aborted fetuses to gather stem cells, uh, for use in harvesting good cells to help others. But in 2001, under George Bush's orders, uh, the NIH tried to put some control on this process and said scientists that are using federal funding could only use embryos that are discards uh, from IVF for, for stem cell research. So no funds would be granted for new embryos. Uh, the Dickey-Wicker Amendment 1995 prohibited making embryos solely for research. Now, why not do this? Uh, you know, put the already discarded, sanctioned IVF throwouts to good use for the benefit of others. Well, because such would lead society even faster down the path of dehumanization, uh, training us to think nothing about human death. So continuing to erode the public view of the sanctity of life, uh, killing respect for human life, uh, just like the Roman Colosseums of old did. Um, Insu Hyen, writing in uh, Nature in 2014, concerning cloning human embryos for stem cell research purposes, he said, for some, this uh, cloning embryos raises two dangerous specters, cloned human babies and a future in which human embryos are callously created and destroyed for various kinds of research. Whether the, <laughs> I think that means I'm supposed to be done. <laughs> Whether the latest advances could lead to research that trivializes embryos is uncertain. All right, so shouldn't we know? <laughs> is that a hint? You guys are bored out of your minds. Is that what is going on here? I tell you what, that's a first. That's never happened to me. <laughs> you know, fir firsts are always fun, you know? Until you think, wait a minute, why are they doing that? I mean... All right, well, um, for the sake of time, apparently, I'm going to jump way. Uh, let's see here. You know, the cool thing about um, a stem cell research that is uh, brand new. Um, so in embryonic stem cell research, uh, you've got uh, somatic cell nuclear transfer that's used. This is where, like in cloning, so you remove DNA from an egg, you transfer the, the nucleus of a skin cell into this egg. Uh, the, the egg recognizes that it's been fertilized, begins to grow like a normal embryo. The embryo is subsequently destroyed by harvesting uh, its cells. Uh, Elizabeth Landau 
science reporter for CNN explains this. The first developments in the field of stem cell research use leftover embryos created by the union of sperm and egg, egg from in vitro fertilization, but embryonic stem cell research is controversial because to use the stem cells for developing medical treatments, the embryo is destroyed. Embryos have the potential to develop into a fully formed human, bringing up ethical questions. Scientists later realize that it's not necessary to use embryos to attain stem cells that match patients. Shinya Yamanaka won the 2012 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for discovering how to make induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS, IPS cells. So this, is, this is an exciting, exciting thing that's happened here just in the last five years. Essentially, scientists have discovered a way to uh, get the benefits that, were, that, were, uh, that they were getting from stem cell research, but do it without killing embryos. You can actually just take adult uh, stem cells and then put them back to an undifferentiated state. So ultimately, this could eliminate at least one huge category of abortions that are going on in this country, which probably are not even, I doubt those are even in the statistics on the abortions going on, what I'm talking about here. But we, of course, recognize this would have uh, a lot to, uh, this should be included in the abortions that are going on in this country. All right, well, I'm not going to have time to talk about everything that I would like to on this. Hopefully this gives you a, a, a good taste on a lot of the medical type uh, issues that are, we've got to be able to consider and talk to people about. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, would it be wrong for me to use in vitro fertilization? Well, <laughs> We as Christians need to kind of know something about what's going on, at least know the main issues, and be able to, I think, converse with people uh, on that subject uh, and be ready to defend the truth, teach the truth as God would see it. And we definitely don't want to teach somebody something wrong about this, where they go do something that encourages the death of human beings in the womb. All right? Thank you very much for your attention.